welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. We're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Zach Shahan, CEO of Clean Technica. And today I'm talking with Will McDonough, CEO and lead portfolio manager at EMG Advisors. Will, just to start off, could you tell us a little bit about EMG Advisors? It's actually a long, long name, which is, but good, well, well shortened to EMG Advisors. But what's the full name and the company's uh, background? Sure. Yeah, we're uh, Energy and Mineral Group is a uh, 16-year-old private equity firm with about $13 billion of current assets under management and is far and away the leader in the uh, energy and mineral investment space, um, natural resources space. They're based down in Houston. Uh, Their principles are mostly Texas, but they own assets all across the globe, oil and gas, natural gas, LNG, also rare earths you know, with a real keen focus on uh, this kind of growing green movement. We set up EMG Advisors in partnership uh, to build more retail products. You know, I and their founder, uh, John Raymond, were um, speaking actually with the White House about five years ago about the growing dependence uh, the U.S. has on China for these rare earths and critical metals. And uh, the result of some of those conversations was President Trump tweeting that the U.S. should buy Greenland, which was really comical and embarrassing at the same time. But the reality of the situation was, you know, uh, a sad reality that we are dependent on China for these metals. And so I, in a private investor capacity, reached out to my old team at Goldman Sachs and said, how do I get long lithium? How do I get exposure to the growth of lithium and copper and cobalt and nickel And they gave me two options. They said, you can either invest in private equity, which is 10-year lockup, you know, five, $10 million minimums, two and 20 fees, or you can trade futures, but you need $10 million in cash on deposit to trade one futures contract as collateral. So I, as someone who should know my way around investing, had no options for how to invest in this unbelievable geopolitical, global macro, future tech, future environment thesis. Uh, And literally that day called my now co-founder, John Raymond, and said, we got to start an ETF and we got to build a product for retail investors to be able to participate in this massive rising demand. And that was, you know, like I say, probably five years ago, and it's not an easy thing to pull off, but we pulled it off. And on December 28th, we uh, had our first trading day of our business charge is the ticker CHRG on the New York Stock Exchange. And we do that exactly what we set out to do five years ago. We give lithium, nickel, cobalt, and copper futures exposure to investors. And it's been a great thing already in our 41st day of trading. We were named uh, one of the five nominees or finalists for best new ETF of the year. So uh, I think we're on to something. Well, congratulations. It's a clever ticker too. I like that charge. It's, uh, you know, I think with mining, the mining sector in general, it's always hard to make it relatable to normal people and, you know, help them figure out 
what what it is and what's going on and you know in this business that i'm in we've been sort of what i've said for over a decade is sort of translate highly technical stuff to like normal english and we sort of you know we're sort of like uh we try to make do our best to understand what's happening and then to put it in fun and interesting and and just uh and, and it's a simple thing you know word chart but i'm sure you guys talked about it for days or weeks and oh, thought yeah. about it and and uh and i think it's it just it's a testament to how how you're going about it to to realize how important that is but that's that's an interesting the greenland story of course anyone who follows politics i think that's got to be one of the one i mean there's a lot of wacky stories in the past decade but you know that's one of the that's yeah. one of the wackiest i, I would say and uh, it just shows a complete <laughs> lack of understanding of how the world works but, but it's, you know was, it's was just part be, of the comedy like having that connection to it you've got to have you know you've got to have a number of situations where you're, you're trying to read the room like should i tell this story right now should i, should I bring this up or not like, well it's, it's nonpartisan. you know it's not like we were in there with our uh, trump hats on telling the story it was more like you are in the you are the u.s government and you need to realize this is a big deal yeah. And so that's the big thing. That's the important thing. And aside from the funny uh, anecdote. Yeah, I think we started, you know, actually, I would say that I'll give credit to Roger Atkins in the UK. He was he was getting into the mineral, the lithium uh, space more before I was and was was talking to various lithium experts, lithium Joe, one guy's nickname, uh, a big guy in the industry. And he was, you know, he was always, we, we had been presenting, I'd co-hosted a, an EV conference in, in Amsterdam, I don't know, seven years ago or something. And wow. he was there and we were talking, you know, we were talking about the revolutionary, it was, it was, I was co-hosting it with Tony C, but we were the two co- the co-hosts. And, uh, you know, we, a lot of the discussion about the revolutionary nature of these trends, these technologies, and, you know, we're on the same page. We're like, you know, I was going to go so fast, people don't realize it. And then I, a few years later, you know, we're in touch and he's like, no, you know, lithium is going to be a big bottleneck. And I was like, I'm, I'm talking to these lithium guys. Like, I, you know, you know me, you know, we're, we're all about these fast transitions, but there's going to be a bottleneck here. And I was like, gosh, it was weird to get Roger Atkins putting on the brakes here. Yeah. And then the more I got into it, the, the first real lithium experts we spent a good amount of time talking to were Howard Klein and Rodney Hooper at RK Equity and you know, it was the same. And then it's like the same story over and over. Everyone you talk to in the industry was like, it takes at least five to seven years to start up a mine. You got to have the funding to do it at that point, not one to two years away from production. And no one's investing the money. You know, it's a big, it's a big challenge. Like, yeah, we're going to, you have the potential for all this rapid growth, but you need more serious uh, investment in the mining early on. So I'll just get your I mean, I assume you're nodding a bit, so I assume you're you're on the same page. How have you seen that change? Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, they were. So I brought that up because they were the ones who were talking to me several years ago about trying to work with the different administrations, you know, to try to get this. So around the same time you were talking with them about them, I know these guys were also talking with whoever they could to say, look, this is a national security issue. It is. China's dominating this market. With bottlenecks coming, it's going to be you know stronger chokehold than uh, OPEC has on oil if we don't do something. So, yeah. So give me your perspective on how that has evolved in the past, you know, five years or so, since the Greenland. Uh, yeah, incident. man, it's, it's um, you know, you're, you're dead on about how capital intensive and how long and hard it is, you know, to find a reserve of a metal of any sort 
get it in, get the infrastructure in, get it into production, get it into extraction, then get it into processing, then get it into manufacturing. The amount of capital necessary, you know, they old uh, when we were in junior high, they say, how do you make a bill of law? Like that whole story, I can picture the song. How do you make a rock picture, into a battery? They did a good job with that. That's in the in the in the conscious in there. Deep That's in the, the only thing I remember. Everyone from from... Grade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but how do you make a metal a battery? Is like you're right. It's five to seven years, but the real long, uh, arc is eight to twelve because once you pull it out of the ground. You ain't you haven't even started yet. And that's the second bottleneck that we're u- uniquely acutely aware of is the uh, China controls. The, not only do they control the majority of the offtake agreements for these metals, but they control literally a majority of the processing. And, um, you know, there's a great story in the last two weeks, not a great story, a horrific story, I think, where cattle, the battery manufacturer announced that they will sell to Chinese companies for remarkably lower than they'll sell to Tesla. And that's what you're gonna to start to see, I'm afraid, is this self-consumption story where even, even though the mines are global and even though, you know, sadly they tend to be in non-democratic countries that we don't necessarily have perfect relations with always, Democratic Republic of Congo, or as we call it, the not-so-democratic Republic of Congo, they're able to extract these metals in Zimbabwe, you know, and, and all these great places that I happen to have physically been to, but they're very hard places to do business. And the way that the Chinese are able to outmaneuver us is they are making investments with a hundred year time horizon, whereas the U.S. isn't doing it in a concerted way. And so it's just private individuals trying to raise enough money and trying to pull off operational feats to make those bills into laws, to make those rocks into batteries. And it ain't easy. And so- When you look at, you know, I'd be interested uh, since you've been in the space so long, how have you invested in the space individually, you know, personally? Oh, yeah, we've, I think that'd be a different conversation. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I, I, I think, you know, we have to give China credit because these discussions always, you know, you, you, you assume a lot and then you get into what you think is the sort of the talking point. I mean, China, They had the, they've had vision. They they're able to move quickly. Of course, that comes with huge costs sometimes to humans and the environment. But they are able to have a hundred year plan and know they're going to go for it. And they they commit to it. And everyone knows, okay, they're on board. So there's not a question of oh, will the will the politicians change in two years or four years? Right. So you know they have a big advantage there. It's just an inherent advantage we're not going to have uh, be able to compete against, which makes it very tough. But one thing with, you know, we've, we've talked about, I think it was 60% or more of, of the lithium is, is processed in, in uh, well, uh, in, in China, graphite 100%. But there's also the majority of the electric car market is chi- in China now. So I, you know, I forgot about this for a long time talking about this matter. I'm like, oh, yeah, but, you know, really the majority of electric cars and electric buses f- by far are in China. So it sort of matches that they would have the most processing facilities and all that stuff. But the clear trend is, you know, EVs, I mean, almost every car ad is an EV ad here in Florida, where I am, you know, it, all the automakers know if they're going to survive in 2030, 2035, if they're going to be where they are in the market or better, they have to be an EV leader. So everybody knows it's going to EVs. And so now there's more of a concerted, it's not the same as China, but there's more of like industry-wide, oh, we're going there. Everyone's on board. We know we need these minerals. We know we want them in North America as much as possible. So there's that kind of a little stronger 
And a I little think- bit, a little <laughs> bit. I'll, I'll push back a little bit on that because sure. yeah. they say that, but they're, I don't see people being willing to make the sacrifices necessary to do that. That's a good point. And so they're sitting here saying, we need to do this onshore. You know, there's a crazy story out of Minnesota in the last couple of weeks where in the same calendar week, they announced that they forbid mining in this parks region in northern Minnesota. And the governor in the same calendar week signed that they're going to be only consuming 100% green energy by 2030. And so you you have yeah. literally physically <laughs> talking out of both sides of their mouths. This doesn't. It's not in my backyard. And so people say, yes, we have to onshore this. Yes, we have to nearshore this. But until it says, well, where are you going to dig that hole? Where are you going to do that extraction? Down the road? No, 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 no. Not here. We're going to do it here, but not here. And yeah, that's just not, right. that's just, in, in, until people are willing to make those sacrifices, we are calling China and hoping that they're willing to sell it to us for whatever price they decide. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think we'll, we'll get there in one more step, but I'll just uh, one step in between, talk a little bit about the IRA. I mean, my, I was hopeful just based on talking to people in the industry when Biden was running, I thought, you know, he's a he's a very manufacturing, working class kind of focused guy. He's very focused on on that part of the of the of the economy, the market. And, you know, he's pragmatic. He's, you know, some people might say he's very progressive now, but he's always been a very pragmatic politician mm-hmm. of, you know, and just, you know, recognizing all the all the aspects of society. So I thought, oh, this is hopeful for, you know dealing with the mining stuff and, and, you know, getting, getting the EV industry going more. I did not expect the IRA to be as big and incentive, you know, strong with incentives as it is, you know, it's, it's incentivizing mining separately, incentivizing processing separately, incentivizing putting battery cells together and then fourth uh, putting battery packs together. So you have strong chain of subsidies that, you know, some people might say it's too much. You're just throwing money at the you know throwing money away but it's gotten a lot of companies to say oh yeah actually we're going to build we're going to do our battery stuff in in the US not in Europe or not in South America or wherever it's like a lot yeah. of companies are yeah we'll take the money we'll move over to the US and it's and it's a big movement with i mean a lot of companies so what's your experience with a little bit more if you have any more info on how that came about if you were involved in in lobbying for that or talking just you know talking with people about it I, I haven't heard a lot of great stories of who really got that through because it takes a monumental effort and yeah. uh, there must be a lot of people worked on it, but there had to have been some more, some real leadership behind the scenes to get that to happen. Cause that was big legislation. Yeah. I think Manchin deserves a lot of credit around the, that. the response since then. Yeah. yeah. I think, I do think Manchin deserves a lot of credit on that. You know, it is a feat to get the energy industry on the same team as the environmentalists. And so that is a monumental feat to be able to admit that in reality, we have to take one step back to take two steps forward. And some of that language when it first came out was written by folks that didn't truly understand the subject matter because it was just physically impossible to be pulled off. But they've tweaked things since then to allow for some workarounds. You know, there was some critique of, uh, I think, a deal that either Ford or GM did with cattle because it was really just a workaround. And they said, oh, no, we're paying them for IP. And so we're paying you 99 cents for IP and one cent for metal. And really, it's just like left ledger, right ledger stuff. 
But I don't care because at the end of the day, that is incentivizing adoption. And that is what the world needs to do to, to meet this, these energy goals. You know, to your earlier comment, which was and I would just on, say too, sometimes you're going to incentivize the battery cell or pack production in the U.S., but not the mining. And I yeah. mean, that's not 100% what you want, but it's something. It's something better than something. nothing, right? So, I, I mean, of course, you always want the mineral, everything, the processing to happen, you know, but, you know, it's good to get a tier of, you know, options. So you have a, all, all types of, of successes. Totally. Yeah. In, in the U.S., you know, as you also point out, unfortunately, operates on two to four year cycles and everyone's always running for reelection. And they're so fast to say, we'll be carbon neutral by a date that I will no longer be in office. But, you know, the physical or ability for them to, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just it's just politics and it's unfortunate. But you are correct that this Inflation uh, Reduction Act, which was so horribly named, but, you know, does push out a lot of incentive into the market for people to onshore these services. And that is a step in the right direction. It is kind of a revolver too, meaning that it doesn't run out. And as long as people continue to comply, they can continue to access those sources of capital. So that is going to be net very positive for the adoption curve of these uh, green technologies, you know, in the energy expansion, as we call it, you know, some people say energy transition, the reality of it is we're just expanding the sources from which we're getting energy as opposed to absolving previous sources. Uh, and that's okay, because that's going to be net positive for the environment and, and is a necessary step. So going back to that, you know, the, there's this story up in the North, Northeast that you mentioned, and just following up with this issue of, you know, how effective the IRA has been. So when it comes down to it, you got to have projects or you got to have manufacturing, you have, you got to have stuff happening somewhere in the ground, in the, or in the, in the water or something in the US. And yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, anyone on the street is like, do you support environmental protection? I, I did my, my bachelor's thesis on this. Everyone supports it. Who's willing to actually even drop a, you know, the, the plastic bottle in that can that's a block down the street than this totally. one. So it's like, you know, it's, it's like, uh, there's a big challenge. And when it comes to a, a mining facility or a pr production facility, a factory, you know, there's a lot of people are going to fight it if it's anywhere in their region. And this is a problem getting people to understand, Hey, this is for the greater good. I don't think it's that it's not that easy. <laughs> so how do you see just the progress in specific projects and just across the U S happening with the IRA incentives and just with that, that concept. Yeah, we're seeing progress in Nevada. We're seeing progress in parts of the country that, you know, trend to uh, be run by Republican leadership, you know, and, and sometimes when people ask me to speculate on a project by project basis, I say, well, let's just look up real quick who the governor is. <laughs> let's just look up, you know, who the uh, government is in that state, because that's going to drive policy. And if those policies aren't aligned with and supporting, you know, that and, and willing to take environmental short steps for the long term good and for commercial good, well, then that's going to be really hard for that to happen in that state, i.e. my part, my comment about Minnesota. And then you go to Nevada, which is, you know, more spread out. And so they're able to do this mining activity more miles away from, you know, inha habitation. And so you're starting to see stuff like that get through and you're starting to see projects like that get support. 
in either Republican-run states or in states that you know are able to geographically extract uh, with distance from you know school children. Yeah, and there's a lot of battery production facilities in the south, and yeah, quite a fa- quite far away from big metro areas. Well, let's just have a couple of follow-up sort of different directions. I'll I'll introduce them briefly. I want to see see what you can say about Europe's response to this. Also, just curious, you guys are involved in a lot more than lithium. So we often talk about lithium, but you, you go into nickel, copper, cobalt. Can you first tell us like a little bit more about these other markets, how much they're similar to the lithium story how much you know if they have other challenges and uh, what you're seeing in those other markets outside yeah we you know the majority of our portfolio right now is actually in copper uh, not in lithium we believe that copper is as big if not a bigger story than lithium because copper is required for all of the charging infrastructure copper is required yes for the batteries themselves but the connectivity of that battery to every corner of the vehicle the connectivity of that car to the grid connectivity of solar and wind sources to solid state batteries, all of that requires copper. A crazy statistic that I love is that every EV requires over one mile of copper wire per car. So the demands for copper and the future of our connectivity to these sources of energy is really a major story that I think requires more attention. Cobalt, because yeah, I'll, majority... just, I'll just say on copper. So I, my wife is Polish and I lived in Poland for 11 years and they have a big wow. copper industry. And we got connected with the Copper Industry Association and you know, met in their offices a few times. And they're like, we got to collaborate. And they gave me this big report on how much copper was in the you know, EV charging stations, motors, all this stuff. And uh, we never really did much together, but it was it's always been ingrained in my head. Oh, copper is sort of a, a quiet you know, huge part of this transition that, you know, huge people part. never seem to focus on, but it's a big part of it. But I think it's it's less limited, right? It's, it's not so hard to scale up, right? Yeah, you know, but it's also more in more demand. And so there haven't been new sources of copper found in decades. And so you've had legacy demands persist. And now all of a sudden, this whole green movement is a whole new swath of demand for the same supply that we had before. And the same bottlenecks exist as well. You know, you can only process this stuff so fast. You can only extract it so fast. And we think the world has way underappreciated the demand curve for copper with a static, if not volatile supply. And by the way, China controls over 40%, I believe, of the world's copper processing. So back to the same story. Well, that's, that's interesting. So you think that there's a similar kind of challenge and need in the copper industry as, as in the lithium industry? Maybe bigger. Wow. You know, lithium to its benefit is the cornerstone of all battery technology. And so even as battery chemical compositions mature and need less cobalt, less nickel, whatever it might be, you know, that Ford recently announced that they're doing LFP batteries, which require very, very little of, of the uh, nickel and cobalt relative to the NCM 811, NCM, you know, five series. And so, you know, we're definitely allocating to nickel and cobalt, less so cobalt every day, mostly because the world knows that, you know, for us to build technologies dependent on the Democratic Republic of Congo as our sole source is just not a a smart business decision. And so the chemical compositions and the technology is evolving away from that more to the LFP and the more solid state stuff. And you're starting to see some silicon 
opportunities. And, and so what we do, you know, at charge is we take over a thousand sources of use, if you will, that ultimately are going to be four wheel cars, SUVs, two wheel scooters, e-bikes, all of it, boats, planes. We look at the entire universe of those that will be using batteries. And then we look at the demand curve for each of those on a case by case basis and associate that with the underlying battery technology that it's leveraging. So if Tesla comes out and says, we're gonna do 20 million cars by 2030, and they're gonna be all NCM 811 batteries, well then we know what that will mean for demand for the underlying core metals. And we take that and then using you know, our global uh, insight, which is unique because of our 16 years in the industry, look at the supplies of those assets and, and, and identify imbalances and make allocations based on that. That's why we have a far lesser allocation to lithium than we did at the beginning of the year and a far higher allocation to copper right now than we did at the beginning of the year because of that imbalance that we're starting to see. We do think that there's going to be a bit of a surplus of lithium in the next 12 months, and there's more and more supplies coming online. Back to our earlier conversation about the arc of how long it takes for these things to actually start to spit out product into the market. And the inverse of that we believe to be true for copper. And so we predict the next 12 months will be really, really positive price activity for copper and, and lithium may have some bumps. Now, if you were to zoom out and ask me three years from now, five years from now, do I want to own lithium at today's prices? Most definitely. But if you ask me where it's going to be in three to five months, I, I might say I'm not as sure. And so we we have to you know weigh both of those things. Yeah, I was thinking about asking you which is the 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 mineral or the industry that you find most challenging or seeing the the most you know difficulty with uh, scaling up. But then I thought, well, well, what time frame? <laughs> like, yeah, in the next year, in the next five years, in the next ten years, it all depends on the time frame, right? Well, that's what's unique about our product too, is we we update our portfolio at a minimum monthly. And so we're constantly moving our positions just between those core metals. So you're always going to have some mix of cobalt, nickel, copper, and lithium. And just based upon where we see the market moving, we will adjust the portfolio to make sure that you're participating in the right corners of that over that period of time. And I'm quite confident that you know we're going to outperform anyone that's purporting to do the same. Well, that's very interesting. And yeah, we don't we don't endorse or provide any investment advice, of course, disclaimer, but uh, that's a very appealing pitch there. You know, it's very hard. It's hard. It's it's tremendously hard to follow any of these industries closely. It's not it's not Apple and Google where there's a million websites covering it. There's there's a covering these different minerals and mining sectors is hard business and uh, having it. And then knowing what, you know, knowing what's behind the scenes, you know, and all that. So it's, yeah, it's a testament. So well, I'll talk I'll to the how uh, many people, how many people you have working on this and, and how many uh, investments do you have at the moment? Like how many um, yeah different individual investments? Well, that's, what's uh, really unique about our structure is first of all, the energy mineral group more broadly as our partner has a deep, deep global bench of folks that do nothing but this 24 seven. And then the second piece of that is that right now we have four total investments. We try to keep it very, very simple and purely trade the futures contracts on the metals because, you know, to, to uh, your earlier comment, the mining industry, is, especially for lithium and nickel and cobalt, they're all startups. They're all underfunded, 
yet to be you know, licensed or approved pipe dreams. Not all of them. When you look at SQM and Albemarle, there's some great multinational companies, but they're very diversified. The ones that are purporting to just be in the business of extracting lithium, they're a, they're a seven-year venture bet on whether or not they can actually pull it off. And there's no track record to point to to say, oh, no, they can actually do this and they will. And you're right, seven years from now, if they become the global provider of lithium, that stock will be far higher than it will be today. But for every one of those, there'll be six or seven that are bankrupt and out of business just because they ran out of money or they were in the wrong political regime or the wrong corner of the world to do it. Whereas if you strip out that execution risk on the minor level and strip out the execution risk on the car company level, which is another unfortunate thing. You know, a lot of these car companies are startups with no IP. You know, Arivian, yeah, it's got a cool body, but it doesn't have a proprietary battery. It doesn't have a proprietary user interface. It doesn't go faster. It doesn't maneuver quicker. It's just a car design with a badge on the hood and the same, you know, technology under the hood that a Tesla has, that a Ford has, that a GM has. And so, yes, one of those might become the Ferrari of the 2030s, but that's a venture bet on that happening. And I don't need to take that risk when I can just buy the metals themselves. And no matter who wins the race in EVs or mining, we, we win. It's a great pitch again. You're good at this. But yeah, well, we it has talk... the added advantage of being true. You know, yes, I, I can tell it's, that it's based it's in, facts. I mean, you wouldn't be doing this if you thought you'd be better off uh, going and playing the game with uh, Rivian and Lucid and whatnot. Well, the, we had a different uh, company on with, with a, they're investing in different different aspects, different pieces of the business. And he was given a pitch, you know, we need more people to invest in these, in this industry. And they invest in, in individual, you know, mining companies and projects too. And, 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 you know, actual projects too. But, you know, he said, you know, like most of these will not, will not come to fruition. I mean, most of these, and you don't know, it's not like they're necessarily, it's not like you put on your BS detector and who's, who's given more BS. It's, you know, there's a lot of things that can kill a project and you don't have track records. Like you said, that say, Oh, well, they've done 200. So they're going to do these next 200. It's, it's a, it's a very difficult business, very difficult industry. And you're, you're, you're given like 10 puzzle pieces out of the hundred that are needed to build the puzzle. And you're like, well, are, is the puzzle going to get built? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And somebody said to me one time about being an entrepreneur, they said, uh, being an entrepreneur is like jumping out of a plane with all of the pieces to a parachute and hoping you figure it out before you hit the ground. Uh, that's kind of uh, what the mining industry is as well. It's just, yeah. let's hope these people figure this out between now and seven years from now. And if they don't, uh, I'm going bankrupt. Yeah. Well, what we've always, we've always been focused on what's interesting, what's exciting, what's insp inspiring. Uh, I'm just curious uh, from your end, what do you find like uh, every day? What are you most interested in learning about on a daily or weekly basis in these different, like, do you get really into the nickel uh, what's happening in nickel? Do you get really into specific political trends or anything else? Or what, what gets you most excited? Yeah, the political stuff's very interesting. And it's it's nerve wracking. But when you look at the countries from from which we get these metals, and you track their own political maneuvering, you know, there was some news about Zimbabwe outlawed the exportation of lithium. There was some news out of the Philippines where they said, we're going to tax nickel exports 25%. And what you're starting to see, you know, China is a whole nother animal with the cattle news where they said, we'll sell to state-owned companies for far less than we'll sell uh, to multinationals. You're starting to see this self-consumption story. 
And the bottleneck that we're all talking about, you know, people really don't want to talk about the uh, concentrated supply chains and the dependence on foreign governments that, as I say, are not necessarily democracies. At any given moment, they can just say with the swipe of a pen, none of this stuff leaves the country. And as we saw with China just last week, shutting down lithium production for a month, it sucked 13% of the global supply out of the market in one day, just because they chose to. And you know nobody calls that price manipulation or price fixing. But at the end of the day, they know that if they shut off the spigot, the price goes up. Oh, by the way, how'd that work out for Eastern Europe when they had single central dependence on Russia for oil? How'd that work out for us to be depending on Saudi Arabia and Russia for our global energy supplies? And as you referenced earlier about the OPEC, what is the new OPEC? It's China. It's China, China, China. There's only one member and we have to deal with them. So what does that do in an environment where you have massive rising demand and this ubiquity of, of, of confidence that we're going green and expanding our energy sources, but you are dependent on a single central source that has already done things to prove that they're not willing to play nice. And that's really nerve wracking because if this were just an investment opportunity in rising demand and static supply, I'd be excited about it. But since it's rising demand and very volatile supply, it's really something that I wake up every morning anxious to read the news about. Yeah. And you said no one wants to talk about it. We, we like to talk about it, not, not because it's particularly uplifting, but because it's so important and it's, it is a fascinating element of what's happening. Well, we had articles just published, Transport and Environment from the UK, European organization published it, but we published it, we published their stuff on our site too. And the, it's about two thirds of European battery production is at risk. And they, they, they map it out by country, by company, very fascinating analysis, but it's basically, you know, there, Europe is dealing now with the fact that the U.S. has jumped ahead with the IRA and is trying to respond to, to China and the global situation, basically. And that's putting a lot of risk in, in Europe, where, where companies were planning to build battery factories or, or different things. Europe hasn't been really jumping into mining or processing much, but definitely battery cell and pack production. And I think the, the IRA was a big wake-up call for, for Europe. And of course, you know, our administration can change. Someone could try to repeal all these incentives, but I don't think anyone on, on the Republican or Democratic side is is going to be taking back these these incentives. It, it would be a lose a losing story for them if they did. So they wouldn't do it, I think. So what's what's your take on Europe's response? And what's your take on how yeah, how Europe is dealing with this now that we've talked a bit more about the the US response? Yeah. So, you know, Europe traditionally, forget about just this story, you know, Europe traditionally has a harder time implementing policy because they are a, you know, they try to act as the European Union. But in reality, if you take the geography of the United States and lay it over the European Union, it would be as if all 50 United States operated independently of each other. Yeah. You and I, you know, I live there lived there for 12 years in, in different places. And I'll just, the way I often would explain it too is, I mean, they're, they're sort of trying to do the same thing, but there's a lot more difference and autonomy and cultural issues and historical issues between the countries of Europe. You know, neighbors often don't like each other. Uh, whereas in the, in the US, it's almost completely open and is very, a lot of federal policy, a lot of united 
federal policy and federal uh, culture. And so it's just much harder for Europe to do anything in a very united way. And they have, it comes with a lot of work, a lot of details. And it's just, it's, it's not as like, of course, when it changed from Trump to Biden, a lot changed, but then once, you know, you're able to get something like the IRA through, then it's federal policy. And, and it's, you know, it, you can do it quickly once you have that chance in Europe, nothing really happens that quickly, I would say. Yeah. And that's not going to change. So I think it's going to be harder for them to to move as fast as we. But then you're starting to see on a state by state or <laughs> see me even call it that on a country by country basis, you're starting to see that change and you're starting to see real implementation at a local level. So unfortunately, you're just going to see certain countries over there outpace their neighbors uh, based on those policy decisions, which is unfortunate for their people. And it would be better if they could act, you know, it, it, in a more concerted way. It's just not the reality. And do you see, like, what what do you see as the sort of the hottest, the most, the the regions of the world that you find most inspiring for for solving these various bottlenecks? Whether it's copper, lithium, cobalt, whatever. You mean as sources? Yeah, as sources and processing. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Latin America, um, we're starting to see a lot of activity. It's it's always been there, but more and more they are a prominent player between Chile and Panama and you know, not Central America and Latin American countries like that are more and more important because some of them don't have these optic agreements with China yet, which creates an opportunity for the U.S. to go secure supply or for car companies themselves to go secure supply and ensure that that route doesn't go through China for processing. And I think that's what really the future of this industry needs is a more prominent second and third player like they could potentially offer. Yeah, good stuff. So just to wrap up, I think you've you've already explained what, what you guys are doing and why why you believe in what you do, but could you give us your elevator pitch a little more? Like what what is, you know, what why why should we care about EMG advisors? Why sh- what should it, you know anyone's response to what you're doing be? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, you know, I am someone who went out and did this for myself, right? Because this is something that I sought as a private investor. And when I looked at the investment opportunities that were offered, they were all portfolios, first of all, built by people that don't know the industry. And second of all, they were built by people that you know were just running financial models. And so when we put together our portfolios, we chose not to have any exposure to miners, not to have any exposure to startup car companies, because we think that there's going to be a lot of failures in that space. And so if you look out at, you know, we like to talk about Lit because it's a really great uh, business. I think they have about $4 billion in their ETF, but they have a 0.09 beta was it? price it, of lithium. Who, who, who are you talking about? It, the, the ticker is Lit, L-I-T. Mm-hmm. But if you look at their performance of their, uh, compared to the price of lithium, it's for every $10 lithium went up, their portfolio went up 90 cents. So it's just not a pure product that I think people seek. And then similarly, you know, and I, don't, I shouldn't talk about any specifics, but it's all publicly disclosed what their top 10 holdings are. Their portfolios of startup miners and portfolios of startup car companies. So they're going to have good months of performance, but over a long period of time, I'd way rather just be exposed to the base metals that are in demand no matter who be, wins the race for EV uh, adoption, or no matter what 
you know, chemical composition ends up being the one that we all depend on for our future, I'd be way more comfortable to be exposed in that manner than to these companies that, you know, many of whom are going to fail, unfortunately. That's a great perspective. Very compelling. I, it's not like picking the next Tesla. This is a different thing. It's not like you're, you're there's, yeah. I mean, yeah, and you know, in, Tesla deserves Tesla's credit. Case, I mean, I, I will Elon say, said many times, no, they were the first U.S. car company to to succeed and not go bankrupt since Chrysler. So it's like, yeah. you know. And, and I'm sure you watched the uh, Tesla Investor Day. Uh, you know, they got a lot of heat for not coming out with some sexy new car. But the reality is they spent four hours talking about how they do have proprietary production capability. And that's not something any other car company has. I don't believe Elon cares to be the person that makes the car you drive as much as cares to be the battery producer that is in the car you drive. I think 10 years from now, I might be driving a Ford truck with a Tesla battery in it, or I might be retrofitting an old Jeep with a Tesla battery in it. And I think that is why Tesla ends up being more of a Trojan horse for this adoption curve. And I really believe in the future of Tesla as a great industry defining company. But if they aren't, the world still needs lithium. This world still needs nickel. The world still needs cobalt. The world still needs copper. And so we're going to outperform all of that. And you might be charging on a Tesla supercharger with a Ford truck or whatever, but yep. it's be copper in that supercharger. <laughs> no doubt. So I don't have to really speculate on that and I can still participate in all that upside. Yep. All right. Well, thanks a lot. It was a very fascinating discussion. I really like, uh, like what you're doing. It sounds like just the most logical thing. So again, not an invest, investment advice of any sort, but you make a very strong, strong case. for. Well, well that's why I asked how you're doing it. Cause you know, I've been around investing for a long time, 20 years, maybe. And there's nothing worse than knowing something is happening, being right. Oh, and yeah. then not participating. Yeah, yeah. You know, buying a Tesla and driving it seven years ago. Yeah, that was cool. But you have a depreciating asset in your, in your garage um, we all know this is happening. It's all still really early. And I'm proud of the product we've put out there to enable investors to participate in this foregone conclusion. Yeah, we'll have to follow up. And just definitely, uh, if you see interesting trends or news happening in, in copper and nickel and lithium, you know, definitely get in touch with our team. And uh, yeah, you guys do a great job and I use you as a source and really benefit from the job you guys do aggregating news. And I thank you for that. We also do our best to tweet and on LinkedIn at EMG Advisors, publish news stories from around the world with just one or two sentence commentary as to why we think it's relevant to what's going on in the market. So we cover EV and we cover mining and we cover the base metals. So I would encourage people to track that as well. It's not yeah. going to do as good of a job as Clean Technica. No, uh, it's... These industries are enormous now. And like 10 years ago, we could track everything and we write about everything. Now we can write about a small fraction of everything that's happening. And, you know, it's up to sort of our writing team and our editors, how much we capture the, the most important trends, the most important stories. And, you know, we always try to add a lot of context, have a lot of stories that add context that advance the discussion. So that's a key role we were trying to fill. But there's so much that's missed or there's so much you got to just get somewhere else because we can't publish 2000 stories a day. And, uh, and if we did, we would be a whole different thing, but yeah, yeah no, you do a, a great job and I'm thankful for you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us. Anyone who enjoyed this discussion, please make sure to like, and subscribe on Spotify, on YouTube, on Apple podcasts, on Google podcasts, wherever you're listening to this on SoundCloud. Thank you to everyone. Thank you again to, to Will and your team. 
And best of luck. I don't think you need luck. I think you got a smart enough approach that luck is not really at play that much here. So, so well, just keep doing what like you're doing. Like they say, luck is when preparation meets opportunity and we're prepared. Very good. Sweet. That's a good ending. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.